This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. Well, it is the Knowledge Bank, but the Knowledge Bank with a twist. We are definitely going to get you to know two people, uh, Dr. Tozama April, who's senior curator at the National Heritage and Cultural Studies Center, Faculty of Social Science and Humanities. And uh, we are going to talk to her, get to know her, but also in that time, get to know Charlotte McClegg. She has done uh, some brilliant work. Uh, she calls it the idea to pursue a scholarly investigation on the intellectual contributions of Charlotte McClegg. And uh, she's really written quite a, a, a number of uh, pieces and articles uh, on McClegg, contributed to various uh, panel discussions, lectures, and so on um, in terms of under, uh, helping us understand this intellectual uh, giant that is Charlotte Maclega because I suppose people who write and contribute intellectually don't necessarily die. They live on with us throughout the ages. So by the time uh, it was declared the year of Charlotte Maclega, I immediately thought of her because they had already started doing good work and they had been at uh, Sol Plachi University in one panel conversation on this and I thought at some point we definitely have to get Dr. Tozama April on our show and talk to her, get to know her, but uh, uh, help us understand who Charlotte McTiger is because we just hear people motivating us. Uh, be like Charlotte McTiger. Be like Charlotte McTiger. Uh, but uh, they don't tell us who uh, Charlotte McTiger was and what about her uh, that it is we should be like her because I often say to politicians, uh, uh, you know, you might just not like us if we become like Charlotte McTiger. Dr. Tozama April, good morning. Morning, morning, Lucona. How are you this morning? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Um, greetings to you and the listeners at home. Thank you for inviting me to your show. No, thank you so much uh, for making the time uh, to come here and uh, be in conversation with us. Perhaps, you know, because it's also Women's Month and we're so happy to talk to you. We're not just going to talk about Uba Mushalot Matrega. We also want to know um, about you. Dr. Tozama Ebrel, uh, you are a senior curator where you are at the National Heritage and Cultural Studies center what does that entail on the day-to-day -day work that you do correct correct thank you thank you Mukona. Uh, i am senior curator here at nahex and uh, the, the center is a national heritage uh, center that is responsible for restoring for preservation and identification of the national heritage of south africa mm which is not only limited to the heritage of the, the country itself, but extends cultural artifacts that are at our disposal, are drawn from a range of countries in the Southern African region. We are a cultural studies center in the true sense of the word. And we, we, we are responsible for looking after some of the rare cultural artifacts. We also have the Liberation Archive, which records mm. uh, the history of liberation movements, the range of movements that were involved in the struggle against apartheid. We also have the, the artwork produced by African artists. And we are proud to have been the repository that keeps some of these um, 
uh, artist work that reflects the rich history and the artistic expression of Africans. And our collections were part of the Standard Bank um, gallery that was um, exhibited by Dr. Samem Zuli that had the artistic world uh, uh, talking um, when she exhibited the Black Aesthetic initial collections drawn from us. So we are a national heritage and cultural studies center. And I mean, uh, Dr. April, how important is this idea, you know, of uh, heritage and making sure that, in fact, we preserve it? And I suppose uh, part of your work might have to do with, you know, uh, talking to various people who may have certain pieces that they didn't even know that they were collector collector's item, uh, but you, you and then you help in the preservation of that. Uh, how important is it for us to consciously build that archival record of our heritage? It is crucial for us to keep this um, heritage for future generations, not only for future generations, even currently. You know, the, the, the artworks that are at our disposal reflect the spirit of Ubuntu, the artistic, the beauty and the artistic expression, that inner ability of the people to express themselves artistically mm. and also ideas embedded in those artistic pieces are timeless. So it is highly valuable pieces of work that kind of reflect on um, the rich history and the cultural heritage of um, the people. Now, in terms of, you know, you, you've spoken about, you know, you've got some liberation um, uh, uh, history archives there. But in, in terms of, you know, f- uh, understanding where we come from, our histories, how far back um, do some of the material that you look at, uh, you know, date? And are you satisfied that we've got enough of a record uh, that helps us learn who we are or we still have a lot of work to get done? We still have a lot of work to get done. There is never enough, Lukona. Uh, so far, we have cultural artifacts that date back to the 1800s. Of course, human history goes far beyond than that. Mm. So uh, I would say we still have a long way in terms of identifying and preserving the rich history that um, we possess as a people. Well, of course, uh, besides being being senior curator, you are also an academic with multiple interests. What are some of the things that you are intellectually curious about and, you know, some you've probably worked on and some you plan on working on in the near future? Well, my background is history. I'm a historian by training. And in, in my kind of academic research, I have always been inspired by uh, histories of intellectuals, African intellectuals. Mm. So I've also ventured into histories of liberation, women's histories, public and visual histories, which kind of connect with the kind of work that I am currently doing as a curator that um, is a bridging gap between history and then public and visual histories that begin to identify public histories that are found dispersed in almost every corner, every community. Mm. Um, yeah, so my, my interest uh, ranges from uh, academic history writing, but also more of an interest in the idea of community histories as well, social history. Now, we often lament the, ca- the fact that we don't write enough about our own history. Is there a subject that you have probably looked at 
and given your lens, your background, your your outlook, you feel that you have actually managed to uh, probably tackle in a different manner than those than other people who may have tackled uh, a particular subject uh, simply because they may not be as immersed in the context as you are. I don't know about that <laughs> now, but what I can say with regards to the research I have done on Marshall of McLeake, mm. I would say to a large extent, there are a few inroads that uh, we have made collectively because as a researcher, you build on mm. an existing uh, kind of uh, work by other scholars. But in as far as the legacy and the history of Marshall of McLeake, I think in my research, I was able to make several inroads in terms of unearthing the woman yeah. and also locating her in the intellectual history of this country. Actually, she's not only limited to the history of South Africa. Matlake's legacy extends beyond the confines of the boundaries of South Africa. Absolutely, and we are going to get into that because some of the most uh, influential uh, people in her intellectual journey were not even here um, in South Africa and beyond the borders. But we're going, we're going, we're going to get into that, but I want to wrap up uh, just us getting to know the academic and scholar uh, that you are. Dr. April, please do indulge me. If I don't do this, my team will get me in trouble. So uh, do indulge me. I'm going to fire you with some questions, which I would like like you to respond as a way of getting to know you and then after that we start on that intellectual work you've done on Mama Charlotte Matlege. Now, here goes the quick fire questions to you. If you were president, who would you choose uh, to or appoint as your deputy and why? Now, it's difficult to name names, but there are a few kind of uh, promising individuals that I have I, I have been following quite interestingly. Yeah that um, uh, it leaders that are in kind of good standing, who you never hear anything about them. Mm. So I would just set a criteria for um, a leadership that is beyond reproach. Yeah. So for me, it will have to be setting a criteria. You would have uh, your personal choice, but it, it's not limited to that. It will have to be good ethical leadership qualities displayed by that candidate, then that person would make a good um, a presidential candidate. Absolutely. What music are you listening to? Uh, and now I'm venturing into Ecom. <laughs> are you serious? I've just been introduced by my niece to yep. Ecom. I'm a piano. I'm a piano. Kind of and, 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 yeah. and you are loving it? I am. Are you dancing to it? <laughs> I am. <laughs> if you are not doing the work that you are doing now, what would you be doing? Well, I've always wanted to be a teacher. Mm. I've always wanted to be. I just discovered recently that I was named after a local teacher. I didn't know that a Tozama was a certain local teacher. Oh, wow. So it's clear that you have some calling that you are going towards. And then uh, what quote is it that you live by in your sort of day-to-day life? Pardon? What quote uh, do you live by? Well, for me, it's always been that of displaying a humanity at all times. I, I won't have I don't have that code, but it's just a question of displaying mm. the warmth, the humility and 
reciprocate um, uh, good that is in people without being judgmental. And if you had power to change something about our country, what would it be? Well, I would say, you know, any society, it needs champions. We need leadership that champions um, uh, good ethical conduct in society mm. at all times. So I, we, I, I so wish we could have more of exemplary leaders that step up when the occasion arises. I mean, we need leadership in various spheres of society. We need good quality leadership. I, I would say yeah. it's investing in that. And uh, what is the one thing you say you will do, but you know that you never will? I never set myself. <laughs> you know, I, oh, I'm, a, I'm a pragmatist. You know, yeah. I like to set myself, you know, things that I know I, I, I can do. Mm. You know, yeah. for me, I, I don't. For me, I have to be pragmatic about whatever I, I think and do. It, it, it has to deliver. It has to use some kind of results. Absolutely. And then if you could uh, instantly become an expert in something, what would that be? Instantly. Yeah. I have to work my way up. I'll have to work my way up. If instantly and we could give you magic wand, boom, <laughs> there we are. You can be an expert. I don't believe in that. I really do not. One would have to... You can't just, so many, there's this idea that there are no easy victories. It's hard, sterling work that goes mm. into the making of those expertise, you know, you want. It, it just doesn't happen overnight. What's your biggest fear, Dr. Epre? It's being exposed on radio. I guess, I guess right now, okay, uh, there's, there's no one who's going to expose you here, trust me. And uh, give us a dream that you have that you are yet to achieve. Mine would be to see, you know, in, in, in very kind of ordinary kind of uh, life, you know, there's so much poverty, mm. unemployment, you know, especially in the light of the, the, the COVID-19 and what we've seen, how I wish we could, you know, rise beyond this dark phase as a people more kind of intact with our sense of self and our humanity. You know, what, what COVID-19 has done, it has deprived us of many of the people we looked up to. Mm. So I, I so hope that beyond the COVID-19 we'll be able to emerge and rekindle some of the dreams, desires and rebuild ourselves, pick ourselves together and move forward. Absolutely. On that note, uh, Dr. April, let me take a short break and we're going to come back and explore in part this uh, gallant figure and intellectual Charlotte Magreke. Uh, people of power, if you want to be part of the conversation and, you know, have a question for Dr. Tozama April about heritage, about, you know, culture, about Charlotte Magreke, please do press that dial. Uh, it is 0861-987-000. Let's take that a short break and then be back with our conversation.
Power Talk with Lukona Mgwini. Call Lukona on 0861-987-000. Indeed, and you can also tweet me at Lukona Mgwini, hashtag Power Talk. I mean, Dr. April, you go on this uh, scholarly investigation on the intellectual contributions of Charlotte McClague, and I find your uh, title of uh, that one chapter also very interesting when you talk of her as a celebrated and yet a neglected figure in history. That already paints the complexity of the figure that Charlotte McClague was. Take us through uh, why you, you, you acknowledge both that she's celebrated and yet neglected at once. Yes, certainly. Thank you, uh, Lukona. She is celebrated as an iconic woman who made great strides in South African history, leading the kind of early women's movement in mm. South Africa, so she is celebrated in that regard. But in the same vein, the narratives that celebrate her are devoid of her, her biographical details. For example, one such um, element has been identified around the incorrect information that has been forthcoming about her date of birth and place of birth. Mm. So in that regard, you see some degree of neglect in as far as really embracing the woman and being true to her life history. So I, 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 I carved that paper having noticed these disparities mm. that on one hand, Matlake is celebrated as an iconic woman, but unlike her contemporaries, her male contemporaries whose illustrious biographies have been published, mm. biographical re- uh, details that relate to her have been kind of um, in, in, inconsistent. Absolutely. So that interested me a lot. I've got a tweet here from Pule who says, let us know that Charlotte Madidima Manya was born in Butlokwa under the chieftaincy of Hoshi Ramukhopa. Her father was a lay preacher, moved around the country. Hence, it is said she was from the present day Eastern Cape. We descendants are still alive. So uh, take us through, I mean, uh, in terms of, you know, the place of birth and uh, why it's sometimes seemingly confused by people. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I appreciate the input from the listener there. Mm. Well, my, you know, as historians, as researchers, we are trained to validate information. Mm. One of the basic requirements for any kind of research is to be kind of true to your discipline. Yes. Now, Charlotte Manyama Kleke was born on the 7th of April in 1871 in Blankwater Valley, which is about 20, k- 20 kilometers from Fort Beaufort here in the Eastern Cape. Mm. We know this house from historical records. One of the earliest interviews conducted with Charlotte Makleke herself, mm. she cites her place of birth as being playing water in the Eastern Cape. Mm. Just to take you back to the period um, in which Manya, Ndate Manya, would have landed in the Eastern Cape. When one follows um, the history of land dispossession in the, in, in the Southern Africa, by the 1860s, the dislocations that occurred in 
the present-day Lumpombo Batrokwa area, mm. which is Ndajemanye's place of origin. Mm. That's when they, they, they experienced um, land dispossession. And it occurred that during that period, many young men would embark on long voyages to different parts of the country, including the Eastern Cape, the present-day Eastern Cape. Dr. Ep- Dr. Eberil, please hold it there for me so that I don't get in trouble with Thomas White and Power News headlines. But after the news headlines, I want to pick up uh, from there uh, when you are talking about those many young men and what they would be going out to look for. So, Thomas White, give us Power News headlines. You're listening to Power Talk with Luca, 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 I am Glukona Mguni on Power 98.7. 26 minutes to 12 o'clock on that note. Let's go back to my guest, Dr. Tozama April, Senior Curator at the National Heritage and Cultural Studies Center. If you want to be part of this conversation, do dial in on 0861-987-000. Dr. April, you were taking us through, I mean, uh, questions of uh, land dispossession and how the migration of young men uh, would have taken place in that era of uh, Ndademania. Yes, Ndademania would have arrived in the Eastern Cape around about that time, late 1860s. Um, uh, what was happening in the Eastern Cape, in the Cape province then, as it was called, there were a number of um, projects that were taking place here. They had uh, the road uh, construction um, um, labor that they drew from uh, the, the Transvaal. So Ndademania would have been among the young men who were attracted to the Eastern Cape mm. uh, uh, looking for employment opportunities in road and rail construction. Remember, it was also around the time when the rail line that connected the present-day Tadeja to the interior part uh, of, uh, the, of the Cape province then, uh, going as far as Kimberley was being erected. So these major construction projects would have attracted uh, uh, po- potential laborers from afar. And also, there was also a concerted effort on the part of the Cape Colonial government to conscript labor, to kind of attract uh, uh, laborers from uh, the Transvaal. So at that time, it is not a surprise that Ndademania landed in the Cape Colony around that time, for there were opportunities to get employed in the Cape province. So Ndademania arrived in the Eastern Cape around that time as a laborer and converted to Christianity when mm. he arrived here in the Eastern Cape, where he met his wife, Neanamani. So there is no dispute about Ndademania's place of origin, mm. but in as far as Marshallot Matlake's place of birth, we, we contend, and I contend, I can, having done research, that archival research points that Ma Charlotte Matlake was born in Blankwater, mm. here in the Eastern Cape. So, this, this, for me, what, 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 is, what is important to note about Ma Charlotte Matlake's life history is that it reorients our understanding of the narratives that have sustained our understanding of our historical past. 
quite often I understand the misunderstanding yeah. that people want to place Mama Klaike Koramokopa simply because the narrative scripts that have rendered the history of this country tends to kind of put people in these boxes that if you are a Tosa, you are from the Eastern Cape. Yes. Whereas during that time, such boundaries were fluid. People migrated, people moved from one part of the country to another. And the sense of boundaries, I suppose you are suggesting, wasn't as entrenched as we understand it today in terms of provincialization of the country. That's correct. That's correct. She enables us to understand that historical past. Beautiful stuff. Now, Dr. April, you write about, you know, Matlege. What would you say uh, were some of her greatest intellectual contributions, um, as you said, not only just to South Africa, but uh, uh, to the world broadly? Yes. Uh, in, in my other work, I, I, I describe her as someone, you know, one of the things that we haven't done as scholars uh, um, in South Africa, we haven't embraced the intellectual traditions of black diasporic thinkers like her. Mm. Now, Matlake's intellectual formation, her intellectual formation as a thinker, is shaped in relation to the traditions of the black Atlantic. That is where she interacts with figures like uh, Abu W.E.B. Du Bois, mm. Harley Quinn Brown, who was a professor of electricianist in, at, at Wilberforce, Ella White, in the whole range of the the missionary uh, enterprise of the AME Church in the U.S. So Matlake's intellectual formation is in those traditions. But of course, because she was such a dynamic thinker that she was also rooted in her Africanness as an African woman from South Africa. She kept that identity. She was able to move between these worlds. So to a large extent, I think her greatest kind of contribution to the history of ideas was that ability to weave together different strands of thought that were all shaped by concrete material conditions of her time. On one hand, her experience as a South African woman and also an African woman in the diaspora in the late 1800s. And she's already in a world where, you know, you say she develops, um, you, you say although she operated with the prescripts of modernity, Matlake devised conceptual tools to unpack her critical stance against gender inequality. So she already is in a world where gender is, a, is an issue and a, and, a, and a problem. How does she navigate that while still, you know, finding space to just be herself and express herself and uh, lead and be part of founding movements even? That's correct. One thing I like about Matlake is that she teaches us that nothing is given to you on a silver platter. Matlaga mm. fought for everything she was. Now, where do I, I get this from? When, when, when Mama Klaike returns to South Africa, mm. having studied in the U.S. in 1902, she attends the, 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 the conference that was kind of an uh, assemble of leaders that was held in Lesitian, Ekoman, Gundofukasi. Mm. In that gathering, Matlake did not sit quietly. She wanted to know uh, uh, the status of the meeting, wanting to know 
whether women were accepted, because at that time, this whole idea of a woman who is a leader, a public figure, didn't sit well among leaders of the time, mainly men. Mm. So in that conference, Matlake did not sit quietly. She raised her voice. And what was significant about that moment is that she claimed a space in public political debate. Mm. So that, for me, is something that we, we, we treasure from her, that she creates conditions. She does not wait to be allocated. She, she is there to say, I am here and I stand for something. So Matlake's legacy of assertiveness the ability to express herself is, is, is a momentous kind of uh, a monumental um, landmark that remains within um, our history. Dr. April, what I also find interesting about uh, Matlege is her, 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 let me call it her, 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 her political repertoire of sorts. I mean, by the time the African National Congress is founded uh, in 1912, they are more on the petition mode, you know, writing letters to the king and sending deputations to London and trying all sort of forms. And she's already on the streets with defiance campaigns, you know, and uh, uh, anti-pass, uh, uh, you know, campaigns that uh, she was leading, uh, which, which only really uh, comes into the fray in terms of popularity within the uh, political you know uh, resistance in our politics in the 19 what 1950s late 1950s early 1960s what does this tell us about how uh, ahead of her times uh, she must have been thanks thank, thank you Lukona, again you know this idea of much like uh, having been ahead of her time uh, i want us to entertain that idea a bit because when we view her in that uh, light, she, she, she's, that statement can easily be become dismissive of her because mm. whenever she is placed, she is placed to a nowhere ahead of her time where Matlake mm. was in sync with the conditions of her time. Mm. She's a woman of her time. So there's something about her that, you know, refuses that dismissiveness about her because throughout the, the people that characterize her, they see as someone that's ahead of her time. But she is in her time, but because of her visionary leadership qualities, that enabled her to propose alternative ways of being, alternative, alternative ways of thinking. I see her in that moment mm. of the, 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 the political campaign as someone who defines she, she redefines the terrain of political struggles. Mm. You know, you know, in as far as the writing of, of, of petition and petitioning, Matlake was a speechwriter. Yes. And in mo- in most occasions, the petitions that the women themselves ended in in would have been petitions that they would have drafted themselves. So the petitioning was part of the traditions of the movement at the time. But what was unique about her in that moment is that was her ability to reorient political debate in ways that took society to kind of um, alternative ways of doing things. They were all pursuing the same goals of attaining freedom, uh, but the means through which that was achieved would have drawn from 
they are all holding those who could write petitions they did those who are working in social movements such as the women's feeding schemes that Makaka coordinated would have done so in their lo- lo- locales, you know. Mm. Those who were teachers, those who were nurses at the time, Matlake could relate with a whole range of women. What was unique about the women of Matlake's time also, I want to reflect on that. It is women who were very much aware of themselves. There's one particular woman, Me Sesiane, at the inaugural conference of the First National Council of African Women. When they were deliberating on the naming of the council, others were against the idea of building an African Council for Women, arguing that it would kind of marginalize people who did not identify themselves as Africans. But what was unique about Me Sesiane's input in 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 that context was... The fact that uh, she stood up in defense of the proposal that the council be named an African Women's Council, mm-hmm. suggesting and also arguing, motivating that, I go, this is what she said, as Africans, we have been denied many things, mm-hmm. but we were never denied the right to call ourselves African. Mm-hmm. Now, you see in that period you know, very much early, that these are women who were assertive, they knew themselves, they could, you know, self-identify, they knew that the power of naming, when you develop something, you create something, it's still within you to begin to see it through. What is it that you want to do? So they were very much uh, kind of in sync with the conditions of their time. Interesting. Uh, Dr. April, please hold on. I've got uh, Steve and Sivu on the line. Uh, 0861-987-000 if you want to be part of this uh, conversation this morning. Uh, Steve, good morning. Hi, good morning, Lukana, and good morning to your guest. Uh, I think, yeah, just maybe to reflect on the history of the Bapedi in general, mm. you know, and, and labor on the Eastern Cape. I think it actually goes much further than the 1860s. You know, by the 1850s, you were having Bapedi chiefs, particularly uh, Sikukuni, you know, who would have men going out on the Eastern Cape. Mm. But, you know, in the wool industry, if you think about it, you know, you'd have been petty men working in the wool industry in the 1840s and 1850s. And the purpose for doing so, you know, was to raise cash and actually purchase firearms. And this is at the time when the fronting and, uh, you know, the hunting frontier was still pretty close, you know, to petty chiefdoms. But, mm. but that's the one thing about the labor patterns. My second question here has to do with, you know, Charlotte McLeake in the ni- 1920s. By 1921, she's what? She's about... 40, uh, 50 years old. And I'm actually thinking of the political activism, you know, that takes place you know, in the Eastern Cape, across the Transkei, and also in Natal and the Orange Free State. You know, which forms of struggle seems to be happening way outside of the ANC? Mm. Uh, one classic example here would be the Bullhook, in, you know, the Bullhook Massacre in 1921. 
But subsequent to the Bulwark, you have several women's organizations, you know, which emerged in the 1920s right down to 1939. And these movements are actually Gaziite in character. And the one thing that characterizes them at this stage, just reflecting on them, it is the fact that they were not within mainstream politics that the ANC was actually pursuing. Mm. And I'm thinking that I just want to hear your guest. You know, if you think about Prophetess Nondetta, for instance, you know, she would have led you know, quite a vibrant movement across the Transkei at the same time. And this was operating way outside of the ANC. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, Steve, thank you very much. I'll put that uh, uh, to my guest. Sivu, good morning. Um, good morning, morning, good night. And morning to your guest as well. Mine is just to commend you. Like I heard you yesterday when you said that you this month you're going to endeavor every day a profile of um, a woman, mm. um, et cetera, et cetera. I love the fact that you've brought an expert who is so well-versed. She knows her story. I, I'm learning so much just listening to, to her. And mm. Sisi, may you please continue with your work. Um, personally, I, I will go back now and actually learn more, read more of your work, read more about Mamu, Charlotte Matlaike, and everything else went. But guys, very good job. Very well done. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Sivu. Truly appreciated, uh, uh, Budi, and uh, definitely that kindness towards Dr. April. Uh, much, much befitting. Uh, Dr. April, some reflections on what uh, Steve raises? No, thank you. Thank you, Brad Steve. I appreciate your comment. And um, on the also welcome the kind of um, input on the petty history, and I fully concur mm. with the viewer that there has been a flow of uh, laborers, workers from uh, Bapedi to the Eastern Cape very much earlier than the time that they, that the Maya arrived yes. there. I fully concur with that. But in as far as Mama Tleke, I think there's something that has, as I'm going back to what I said earlier on, that, you know, much to our kind of disadvantage scholarship is that we haven't had a, a, a history of black intellectual life in South Africa. Mm. And I think I locate Mama Tleke within that space. Now, when you talk about public intellectual, it's people that are beyond party political lines. Yeah. I think to a large extent, the travesty with the, 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 the legacy of Marshall Lockmarkaga is that uh, there seems to be an attempt to seek to claim partisan politics around her. Mm, but mm. Her history as a public intellectual, she is someone who speaks truth to power. Now, I'm, I'm always kind of cautious in terms of kind of entertaining party political narratives that people want to kind of um, into. develop from Mama Tleke. What one sees in her, she is a public intellectual of her time, but of course, much aware of the political dynamics of the time. Of course, she, her intellectual formation in the, the Gaziant movement, Ethiopianism, these are all kind of intellectual dreams that inform and kind of shape her political shaping in, mm. in mass 
uh, earlier period of the of the 1920s. Now, in terms of the the movements that were on the ground in the Eastern Cape, Gabo, Eshele, uh, East London. When you see in 1937, when they formed the National Council of African Women, mm. those women who were involved in those struggles were very much a part of the National Council of African Women. For they would have been women who affiliated to the council from their own local social movements that they were already leading, leading up to the 1930s when they formed the National Council of Women. I mean, I, I, I like that you, you, you raise that, Dr. April, and I don't want to get you sucked into the politics, really. But um, it is important to ask the question, uh, particularly for uh, our benefit through your historic lens. Um, is it correct for her to be boxed in partisan politics, given what you know about her? And also, I'm asking this also from the point of view that the truth is that in the ANC itself, women could only become full members in 1943, and that's uh, you know at, at the time she had now passed. Is it is it is it correct for her to be boxed in partisan uh, politics? She can't. What we can do is to learn from her example. All parties, all political formations, if they see something that can, they, they can take from Matlake's legacy, I think we, we haven't come to a point where we understand the, 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 dynamic, the dynamic character of Charlotte Matlake, which I think is, this is an opportune moment for, for us to rekindle the, 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 the vision, the dream of true freedom. You know, mm. when, when Mama, like very much early, before the 1920s and 30s, before she returned to South Africa, in her very first interview, when she was interviewed by the British press, that is where I see Matlake's formation as a thinker. What is her idea of freedom? You know, she is asked about conditions in the Cape Colony. The, 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 the journalists in Britain ask her to reflect on the conditions, the living conditions in the, in the Cape Colony. Mm. When she invites the British press, I mean, in a very, her very first interview, Mama Klaike ex- expressed, you could see that she had a vision of freedom, that let us be in Africa even as we are in England. Here we are treated as men and women. Yonder we are but cattle. Now there are a few things that in that very first interview I cite as reflections of Matlake's conception of freedom. Mm. What was her conception of freedom? Now she says, can you make your people at the Cape as kind and just as your people here? Remember, liberal democracies at the time would suggest that there is fraternity freedom in all territories governed by the crown. This is the dictum of Britain at the time. Mm. Yet, conditions in the Cape Colony, as Matlake suggests, she informs the British public that there's more to what these people are saying. In the Cape Colony, they are not as just as kind as they purport to be. And now, the first thing she, she, she addresses the British public on was, there is still two things that uh, I would ask, help us to found schools, education, Matlake's legacy on education, mm. where our people could learn to labor. So it's education that enables people to do things for themselves, self-sufficiency, where they could build, acquire skills by their bare hands, that is technical and mm. vocational training, you know, so we could be sufficient 
as we could be sufficient unto ourselves. You know, so for me, already in the in the in the eighteen nineties, Matlake is already kind of working the idea of freedom as that for instance the idea of education for her, it is the practice of freedom. It should enable people to do things for themselves. Mm. You know? She also embraced the idea of an Africa oriented civilization that we should develop and bring about a new sense of identity, an African civilization that is orientated in our being as Africans. So this is my formative kind of time. This is long before she's even um, introduced to the African-American struggle. Mm, mm. This is 1892. So I, I want us to you know, persuasively kind of work systematically to bring about the woman before we attach all these other, because we are more likely to lose her legacy without having reached, you know, our ultimate goal of identifying and understanding her. And I see her as someone who is beyond the kind of party political line, you mm, know. Mm. intellectual formation is long before even the ANC is founded in Abs- 1912. Abs- so that whole era is left unattended when we, we begin to want to box her, you know. She is someone who is even before the formation of the African National Congress was already, we need to capture that. It's something that we cannot lose. And and I think it's so important. And I want to ask you, Dr. April, before I let you go, because we're almost out of time, would you then say that she was one of the uh, key or founding contributors to the new African movement, or she may have operated outside of that? She certainly was, but the difficulty, you know, of that, uh, if you look at the web of Undade, the late Undade Ndongela Masilela, may so rest in peace. On the new Africa movement, I'm glad you're raising that. The difficulty of articulating Matlake's ideas within that, mm. it reflects precisely what I started with in that paper, that she is celebrated for, and that Masingela also acknowledges her. Yeah. But in as far as engaging her ideas, it is difficult. That reflects the difficulty of her time as a black feminist thinker who pioneered several kind of initiatives for, for, for women in the domain of thought, in the generation of ideas, public uh, kind of debate, in, in, in social welfare, juvenile justice, in missionary education. She's everywhere. Mm. And I think to a large extent, her legacy is challenging in the sense that she is not someone that is unidimensional. Absolutely. She, her legacy kind of infuses in different terrains. Hence, it has been difficult to kind of capture the essence of the, the, the gigantic figure that Matlake was. Dr. April Diabulela Kakulu, thank you so much for spending this morning with us here on Power Talk. Oh, there's never enough time. Thank you Thank you. Thank you. We'll definitely probably have a part two at some point. Dr. Tozama April, Senior Curator, National Heritage and Cultural Studies Center. From us at Power Talk, it's a goodbye. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.